right, open your Bibles to uh, Mark's Gospel. Uh, we're going to be in chapter 14 today, looking at the first uh, 42 verses of that. Uh, now, do we have, this, we have this picture to throw up here on the screen? You guys familiar uh, with what this traffic sign is? Now, obviously, everyone's answer is like, yeah, it's, it's a yield sign. I mean, it says kind of right on it, man. Like, seriously, you're going to ask me uh, that question? I mean, yield sign just means uh, simply to, uh, to give others the right of way, right? And, and I think we, we can kind of read that, we see that. But I mean, all it takes is uh, driving around a little bit, driving your vehicle around to, to have serious questions and doubts as to whether or not people actually know uh, what this traffic sign uh, is, right? Because they don't seem to follow them very well, right? I remember this, you know, when we used to live up in Barrie, I remember uh, there was one of the on-ramps onto the 400 South. Uh, you had uh, westbound traffic coming, eastbound traffic, and we would merge onto uh, this on-ramp and uh, the... the <coughs> excuse me, the eastbound lane had to had the yield sign. It had one of these uh, sitting right there. But it was amazing. When I was going westbound and I had the right of way, it was amazing how many times people would just blow right through the yield sign going east. And uh, it was crazy. Like it was like literally taking your life in your hands. That's what it felt like. And, and it seemed like so many people were oblivious to it. They would not even be looking at all and they would just drive. Other people actually had the nerve to like, you know, shout obscenities and kind of, you know, move because they were mad that, you know, I dared to go even though it was the right of way. It was kind of this crazy, almost sort of death trap uh, area. And I mean, we probably know areas around our town and around the GTA um, that uh, are like that as well. I mean, people just, let's be honest, people aren't real great when it comes to uh, yielding. Okay, well, in Mark chapter 14, we're shown Christ's uh, incredible act of submission uh, to his father. Right, where he yields his, his will to his father's will, okay, which, is, which is awesome because if he didn't do that, there would be no gospel. Okay, do you know that? Right, there'd be no, no laying down of his life for the sins of the world. Okay, and so as Christians, we understand how, how awesome it is that, that he has done the, that for us, okay, but, um, but what we also begin to kind of realize as we, as we start to unpack all of that is, is that as Christ lived in submission to his father's will, so are we to do the same, right? And, and this, this is not something that comes naturally to us. Have you noticed this yet in your, in your life, in your, in your heart? We're not very good at it, right? Our, our will and our, our, our volition, it, it often stands di, you know, diametrically opposed uh, to the Lord's. Okay, we often don't yield to his ways. We want the right of way. Okay, so, so how are we doing with this, church? Right? How, how are we doing this in you know, everyday life when it comes to your obedience and your walk with the Lord? Are, are we living in submission to him? You know, are, are we growing in this as we uh, grow in humility? Well, these are the things that we're going to be uh, talking about today and, and, and really getting into as we work our way through uh, Mark chapter 14. But before we do, uh, why don't you join me as we pray? Lord, um, we understand as, as individuals, as, as humanity, Lord, the, the pride in our hearts, Lord, and we get, we see that we're not very good at this whole submission thing. Lord, we struggle with it. Um, yeah, you know, bowing the knee to you, bowing our hearts to you is, 
is not something that uh, we naturally possess. And so, Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would continue to uh, overwhelm our pride and humble us and, and get us to the point where submission is something that, uh, that we are glad to do, Lord. It is, it is something that is sweet to us. Lord, I pray that as we you know, look at the examples of, of the disciples who weren't so great here and, and the amazing example of Jesus Christ, Lord, I pray that we would be inspired by you here today. Lord, I pray that anybody who's come in here just wrestling and, and, and battling their pride in, in a, certain, a certain way, any number of ways, Lord, I pray that you would encourage them, Lord. I pray that you would show us that it is far, far better uh, to submit ourselves to you, to your will, Lord, than it is to just live for ourselves. And so God, uh, teach us these things. Show us the, the glories of Jesus Christ this morning. Uh, we pray all of these things uh, in his name. Amen. Amen. Well, here's the first thing. If you're a note taker, all right, I live in submission to the Lord as I'm convinced that he's worthy to receive my all. Right, there it is. And starting in verse one, we begin to see this, okay? Follow along with me here. It says, uh, it was now uh, two days before the Passover and the feast of unleavened bread. And we're gonna get uh, into that and what that means and the significance of all of that uh, a little bit later. Okay, but keep going. It says, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. Okay, so you definitely get the feeling here that the chief priests, the religious leaders, uh, they just had enough with Jesus, right? They, they were done and they felt foolish, which they were. And, and Jesus kept, you know, pointing out the errors of their, of their way and their self-righteousness. And they were kind of, they were done with it. And, and so now they're seeking a way uh, to kill him, uh, to bring him down once and for all. But of course, they want to do that without causing uh, a scene. So they want to save face uh, with the Jews, with the people, you know, keep going. Verse three, it says, and while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was rec reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly. And she broke the flask and poured it over his head. Okay, now John's gospel actually identifies this woman as, as Mary, as in Mary and Martha, sister of of Martha, but curiously, uh, you notice here that Mark uh, leaves her name out of it, okay, which is suggesting to us that her act, not so much her name or identity, is what you and I, we need to be focusing in on here. Okay, so let's keep going. Verse four, it says, there were, there were some who, who said to themselves indignantly, why was this, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii, which was, believe it or not, a year's wages. It could have been sold and, and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a, a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial, which is another clear reference to his, his death that was going to be happening very soon. He continues, he says, And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, um, what she has done will be told in memory of her. And so obviously this was, you know, her act was, was one of just immense commitment and, and, and generosity 
First of all, she breaks the flask, right, to, to pour out this ointment onto Jesus, signifying, you know, how, how all in she is here for, for honoring Christ in this way. You can't, you can't put ointment back into a, into a broken flask, right? And then it tells us how expensive it is. I mean, just imagine, you know, the offering bags just went by. Imagine putting a, a year's worth of your salary in there just because, just because, you know, you wanted to, to honor the Lord, to show your devotion, right? This is a major gift, right? So I think, you know, the big question that comes out for us in this is why? <laughs> like, why, why does she do this? Right? Her, her critics, they're not exactly wrong. Right? She, could have, she could have sold it and given the money to, to the poor and, and dispersed this you know, differently. She could have even you know, give it, saved a quarter of it for the poor. It, it wouldn't have been wrong to do that. Okay? But Jesus, I mean, he's clearly pleased with her act here. And, and he says that we're going to be talking about her and this act for the rest of time as the gospel is being shared, which of course we are uh, right now. So again, the the question remains, why? Like, why? Why does she do this? I believe it's because she sees something that the rest of this dinner party uh, doesn't seem to see. Okay, she understands how great Jesus really is. She believes that he is truly worthy of this gift that she has decided to give to him. She's convinced of it. And because she's convinced of it, it's, it's compelled this, this act of, of love. She's willing to submit everything she has, this immensely you know, expensive ointment, and she holds, she holds nothing back. Now, maybe you and I are more like the dinner guests there, though, and, and we would be tempted to, to look at this as an extreme act of devotion. It seems, it seems so over the top, and I mean, we're not called to do that. We, we, we shouldn't do that, maybe even. But maybe, okay, just maybe that, that suggests that, that deep down, we're not convinced that Jesus is worthy of such an act. Something to think about for sure, but let's keep going. Verse 10, then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the 12, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. Okay, so notice what we're, what we're being presented with here. It feels like the story is just really kind of jerky, right? It's back and forth through, you know, three different things here. Well, well listen, the, the woman's, you know, amazing act of, uh, of, of generosity, her honorable act here is, is bookended by two, I mean, heinous acts of, of treachery. Right? The chief priests and the scribes are you know, working towards murder in the first. Right? That's what they're doing. And, and Judas plans to betray his, his friend, his mentor, his, his rabbi. Now the theme of betrayal and, and abandonment and defection is it's so central all throughout this chapter here. We see it in the religious leaders. We see it in Judas, obviously. And we're going to see it in the disciples as well. And it stands in, in direct contrast with, with what this woman does here, her, her, her act of, of submission to the Lord. And, and of course, Christ himself, his act of submission uh, to his father, which, I mean, play this out with me here, suggests that, that anything less than complete submission to the Lord, giving him our all is on some level anyways, an act of betrayal. 
Because at the end of the day, think about it. If, if Christ died for rebels like you and I, right? He, he, he died for us and, and he gives us new hearts and, and a new identity and a new purpose. And, and we've got a, you know, eternity waiting for us in heaven, all of that. Think about it. How gross is it really when, when, you know, when, when we're like, yeah, no, I'm not, not going to yield this area of my life to you, Lord. I, I'm going to hold that back I know that you went to the cross. I know that you gave it all, but I'm not really comfortable with letting you in there. Not going to let you have your way in me. Not going to submit. Right? A lack of submission, it's not harmless. It's not innocent. It's not acceptable just because, well, that's kind of what everyone does. Everyone struggles with that. No, it's, it's actually somewhere in there in your heart, on a heart level, it's an act of betrayal against our God. Now, you can't begin to, to live in submission to the Lord, not from the heart anyways. I mean, we can always fake it outwardly for a while, but like, we're so anti that around here. We want to be real, right? We want, we want the Lord to, to have our hearts and we want to serve him and love him and, and submit to him from our hearts, uh, as, as people who, who truly want to, right? But, but we can't truly submit unless we're convinced, each of us individually, that the Lord is, is truly worthy of, of our submission, right? He's worthy of giving our all. He's worthy of having our all. Now the woman, right, Mary, she obviously was convinced of this. She was. And it led to this, this heartfelt act of submission and, and devotion to him, right? But how did she get to that place? That's a pretty good question, right? How, how did she get there? Man, she must have been like, she must have had like special powers or, or abilities or she must have been a real unique case and, and, and I could never be like that. But how did, she, how did she get to that where she was so willing to give so much and submit her all to him. Well, listen, I, I, I actually don't think it's all that complicated. I really don't. We think like, man, it, that's, that's so far off from me from ever getting to that place. I don't think it really is. I think really simply, she spent time with him. She spent time with the Lord. She, she, she spent time at his feet, right? We, we know the story about how, how Martha was in the kitchen getting things ready and kind of grumbling and, and she just went and spent time with him. She surrounded herself with, with people in, in that community, with other disciples and spent time with them as well. And, and she, she saw him transform her. She saw him transform other people. She saw his amazing acts. And so she saw how worthy he was of her complete and utter devotion to the point where her heart actually desired to give everything to him. She couldn't wait to submit to his lordship. That's what that tells us. But listen, the same thing goes for us. We grow more and more convinced of, of how great God is as, as we spend time with him. And listen, that's not, that's not news to us, but I believe the enemy is going against that big time. How many of us have the hardest time finding time in our schedules to even open up this book, 
right? We all struggle with it. I struggle with it. We're so busy. We're so overloaded with our calendars and, and our calendars are filled with things that aren't bad, but they're not the best. And, and what ends up getting squeezed out in many cases is, is time spent with the Lord. And we, we don't have the same kind of priority to, to gathering with, with other believers on Sunday mornings and we're kind of hit and miss with all of that. And, and if we do that, it's, that's about it, once a week. But then through the week, I'm, I'm going to be preoccupied with, with so many other things. And my prayer life, don't even ask me about that because that kind of feels non-existent. But all of these things are how we spend time with the Lord. We put ourselves in the pathway of his grace. And as we, as we, as we study the book and as we come and hear about it and, and, and we have other people challenge us about those things, we have discussions about it. And as, as we pray and invite him into our lives and, and bring all things before him, guess what? You're gonna, be, you're gonna be preoccupied with how great he is and you're gonna wanna give your life to him. That's the way that that works. Not just parts of it. Not just, Lord, have my family, but not my bank account. Not, you can have my, my bank account, but not my time. No, you're going to be like, oh, Lord, take it all. Because you start, as you start to give part of it over to him, you realize how awesome that is, how great that is. And you're like, Lord, just, just take more ground. You want, you, it's something, submitting to him becomes something you want to do. It's willing. So listen, we can't be surprised when we push time spent with God off to the side and and then find that we don't have this desire to submit to him and our pride seems to be overruling all of it. So I live in submission to the Lord as I'm convinced that he's worthy to receive my all and am driven by the reality that he gave me his all. That's the second thing. Verse 12, take a look. It says, that on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him and wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where's my guest room where I may eat of the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. There prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. It sounds so familiar to when he told them to go into the city and find for them a cult, right? And talk to the master. It's the same uh, type of idea here. Now the Passover, remember I said we would get back to that. It was a, it was a week-long festival that the Jews would celebrate once a year. And this was like mega, mega, mega. It was major that they would do this. It was, it was the highlight of their uh, celebrations. And so many people and soldiers would gather uh, in Jerusalem to do this. And, and it was a big, big deal. And, and what was that? Well, they, it was where they would celebrate how God rescued the Israelites in their past out of Egypt through Moses. You remember this in the book of, of Exodus? And you remember all the plagues that, that God sent, the, the 10 plagues uh, to convince Pharaoh whose heart had hardened to release his people? Well, the 10th plague, okay, it was where the, the angel of death, okay, God, had gone through, he went through uh, all of Egypt claiming the lives of every firstborn son. Right? And again, all of this was because of the stubborn pride of Pharaoh. 
Okay, but God told the Israelites, okay, that, that I, I'm going to pass over, literally pass over your household, pass over your home if you were to, to smear lamb's blood over uh, the doorpost of your home. Okay, so through this act of judgment on Egypt, okay, Pharaoh finally relented and, and, and released the Israelites said, all right, fine, you can, can go. And, and it says that they left so fast that, that the bread didn't even have time to rise. Hence, hence the feast of unleavened bread, as it was called. Okay, so the Passover meal would be where they would eat a lamb, right? To, to think about these things, they would, they would eat unleavened bread. They would drink wine together to, to remember their, their past deliverance, you know, out of Egypt that God had done, but to also look forward to their, their future deliverance uh, through the promised Messiah, right? So you can probably start to sense here where, where Jesus was about to go with all of this, right? Okay, but first of all, uh, verse 17, it says, and and when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, a Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and say to him, one after another, Is it I? He said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. He said, for the son of man, this is interesting, I love this. The son of man goes as, as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the son of man is betrayed. It's a pretty amazing verse. You see the, the convergence there in that one verse uh, uh, of both the, the God's sovereign plan, right? The son of man goes as it is written of him. This is God's plan to do this. And it says, but at the same time, the responsibility of man in this as well, right? Woe to the man, right? Woe to the man by whom the son of man is betrayed. Now, verse 21, he says of Judas, it would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Yeah, that's pretty heavy. Now, next verse, verse 22, it says, and as they were eating, he took bread and after blessing it, he broke it and he gave it to them. And he said, take, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood, my blood of the covenant or the new covenant, which is poured out for many. He says, truly, I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Okay, so in this moment, Hey, Jesus is, is demonstrating for his disciples here that, that they're not simply or just remembering you know, how they were saved from, from, from slavery to Egypt, okay, but how, how very soon they will be saved from their slavery to sin. Okay? He's pointing to how, how he will be the sacrifice. He will be the final sacrifice. He is the, the ultimate uh, slain lamb. Through his blood poured out, God will, will pass over their sins by, by punishing Jesus uh, instead of them and making, making forgiveness available to them and, and to anyone who would, who would submit themselves before him, who would confess their sin and ask him to be Lord. Okay, that's the gospel. 
That's it right there. And if, and if you and I are, are, are not you know, deeply driven and, and motivated by that awesome reality of, of Christ's sacrifice, his, his body and his, and his blood shed for us, then, then we won't ever live lives of radical surrender and submission to him. Okay, think about it. The, the disciples are about to completely defect here, right? They're, they're gonna leave Jesus hanging in his, in his darkest hour. Okay, but after he rises from the dead and, 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 and appears to them and, and shows him what, what all of this, this means here, and, and they see how, how clearly, how, how, how true this is and how great he is, they live, they live nothing but lives of surrender to him from that moment on. Because the gospel is driving them to respond in this way. You know, we've been talking about you know, how as the, as the disciples, you know, saw Jesus raised from the dead, right? And they saw him come alive and they realized, wow, and he meets with them and he explains to them what all of these things mean. Acts chapter one tells us all about all of that. They become, you know, deeply, you know, convinced of his goodness and the truth of the gospel begins to drive them to give their lives in full submission to him. Right, and I think sometimes it can be easy to kind of read the, the New Testament, the scriptures, and the book of Acts, and be like, wow, these guys were incredible. No, that, that's how we're to live too. Do you know that? That's, that's how we're to live. That's why we talk about, about preaching the gospel to ourselves. Right, reminding ourselves daily all the time that, that Christ gave his all. It was, it was through his sacrificed body and, and his shed blood. You know, if we're not motivated by, driven by that truth and that reality, all of life, do you know this? All of life ceases to function as it should for a believer. Do you know that? If the gospel is not driving you to your obedience, driving you to your surrender, to submission, then, then life just won't, won't be lived the way that Christ calls you to. Now you may be thinking, well, what do you mean by that? Okay, well, write this down. If, I, if I'm not driven by the reality that he gave me is all, if I'm not driven by the gospel, okay, five things, five things. First one, I forget who God is. I forget who God is. And you think, oh, wait a second, I, I don't feel like I've, I've forgotten who, who God is. Um, yeah, we do. We, we, we kind of, we lose sight of all of that. And we forget that God is, God is love. We, we forget that that's, that's the center of the gospel. That's it right there, that he would, he would sacrifice himself for us. It's amazing love. I've talked to so many people who claim to be Christians who don't think that God loves them. I'm like, that's, that's the core of the gospel. How, how, do we, how do we not know that? Why don't we not feel that? Why do we not think that? Why does that not drive us? Well, I believe because we don't think about the gospel. We don't think, we think it's for kids. We think it's you here once and then you move on from it. No, you gotta, be, you gotta be driven by this. You forget that he's love. You forget that he's gracious. You forget that he is God of mercy. You forget how powerful God is. We pray prayers where we don't really believe that the answer's gonna come, but maybe it's because we, we forget who God is, that he is omni, um, omnipotent, right? He's omnipresent. He's omniscient. He is everywhere. He knows all things. He's all powerful, we forget these things if we're not driven by the gospel. How about the second one? I forget what God has done. If we're not driven by the gospel, we forget that what Christ has done. 
And we start to think, well, I, I need to earn my salvation and, and I need to behave so that, so that God doesn't like shoot a lightning bolt down and zap me or something like that. No, you don't. God, God already loves you through Jesus Christ, through what he has done on the cross. You couldn't, you couldn't live the perfect life. So Jesus did for you. If you, if you forget, to, if you don't go, you know, you're, you're not motivated by the gospel, you'll forget all those things. You'll start to live a super legalistic life. Thinking you've got to earn his forgiveness. You've got to earn his love. You've got to earn his respect. No, you've already got it. He's already done all of that. He's given it to you. You've been redeemed. If I'm not driven by the reality that he gave me his all, I forget who I am. I forget who I am. Listen, countless, countless, countless people are, are looking for an identity in something other than Jesus Christ. How many of those people, I wonder, are Christians? Right? I want to purchase an identity through the clothes I wear. I want to I gain an identity through sweating off the extra LBs in the gym. Right? My identity is what someone has, has told me. My identity is my success. No, your identity is in the gospel. Your identity is who you are in Jesus Christ. What does he say about you? He says that you're an adopted child of his. You're a child of the king. You are 100% loved. That is your identity. You're not the style of hat that you wear or the kind of shoes that you wear. Right? How, how insane is it that that's what we think? And our identity comes crumbling down if we don't look the cer a certain way that we want to look. Right? It's crazy. Our identity changes with, with the shifting winds and the changing culture and up and down styles and all of that kind of stuff. Only a, a Jesus Christ gives us the identity that is rock solid. If you're not driven by the reality that gave you is all, you forget who you are. You look for that elsewhere. Here's another thing we forget. Number four, I forget my purpose. Forget my purpose. What's our purpose? Submission, right? In one word, right? That's what we're talking about here today. At the bedrock foundation, it's submit our will to the Lord's, right? Submission. You could say it's to glorify God. It's to love him, to love other people, to, to be missional, to, to disciple. This is our purpose as the church. But we, we kind of lose sight of the gospel. We, we forget the gospel. We're not, we're not driven about it, by it. We make our lives about any other number of things, don't we? And we go after this, that, and the other. It's because we've forgotten our purpose. Here's the last thing. If I'm not driven by the reality that he gave me is all, I forget where I'm heading. Forget where I'm heading. Heaven, right? And eternity with him, right? Kind of makes submitting in the hard areas kind of worth it, right? Knowing that you're, when you do that, you're earning rewards in heaven. He's gonna bless you right now for a while in this life, as momentary as it is. It's gonna be a struggle. It's gonna be hard. But knowing that we've got eternity, it's imperishable waiting for us. How awesome is that? That drives us now to obey. That drives us now to submit. You and I cannot afford to, to forget these things, to lose sight of all of these things. Knowing them in a, you know, a, a head knowledge, you know, getting the answer right on a test, technically kind of way, okay, but, but not where our heart is, is gripped by it and motivated our obedience and our submission, that's just not enough. It's not what Christ's followers have been called to. It's certainly not why Christ went to the cross and gave us his all. All right, I live in submission to the Lord as I'm convinced that he's worthy to receive my all. 
And I'm driven by the reality that he gave me his all, last thing, while grappling with the burden of surrendering my will. Okay, this is a burden, um, absolutely. Okay, verse 26, follow along. It says, and when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives and Jesus said to them, you will all fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. This comes from Zechariah 13, verse seven. He says, but after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. And Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. Right, and Jesus said to him, truly I tell you this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me, not once, not twice, but three times. But I love Peter's reaction here. Notice how he just doubles down. He says emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. We give Peter a hard time about this, but they all said it. They all thought it. They were all committed and, and no doubt, genuinely, right? Their intentions were pure here. They, they, they didn't foresee what was about uh, to happen and they thought that they would be by Christ's side uh, till the very end. But verse 32 says, and they went to a place called Gethsemane and he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him his inner circle, Peter and James and John. And he said to his disciples, actually it says, and he began to be, it says, greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. He noticed the struggle here for him. He says, remain here and watch. And going a little further, he he fell on the ground and, and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, which is showing the intimacy with his father. He says, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. And then this, you got to have this underlined in your Bible. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch for one hour? Watch and pray that that you may not enter into temptation. And then this is good too. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and prayed, saying the very same words. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy. And they did not know what to answer him. They were so sheepish about it. And he came the third time and said to them, are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Okay, not hard for us uh, to see here the, the amount of grappling that, that Christ engaged in with his Father here. Right? He, he did it more than once. Right? And, and it wasn't just the the reality of, of, of the physical suffering uh, that he was about to endure here very soon, but, uh, but, but also knowing that he was going to be absorbing the wrath of God for every sin, for all of humanity, for all time. Right? You remember the verse in Isaiah 53, he was pierced for our transgressions, right? He was, he was crushed for our iniquities. Hey, that is a... That is a mammoth burden, right? a, a huge weight that quite frankly, none of us, no one in history, no one understands it. And, and before 
Christ would go on to complete that and, and accomplish the mission that God had, had, had given him. He had to, here in this moment, surrender his will to the Father's will. He had to do it. He said, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Now, I love this, this quote here from James Edwards. Can we get that uh, thrown up on the screen there? I love this. It says, the plea of Jesus suggests that he is genuinely tempted to forsake the role of suffering servant. Right? His humanity and his divinity coming together here. Nevertheless, his will to obey the Father is stronger than his desire to serve himself. Right? That right there, that is money. Right? Pure gold. Right? And it's what you and I, we have to ask ourselves. You know, is, is my will to obey God stronger than my, my will, my desire to simply serve myself? As Christians, you and I are going to have so many moments throughout, throughout our lives where, where we experience this grappling and this, and this wrestling match within us between you know, what we want versus, versus what, what God wants. You know, where, we're, where, we, where we know in our minds and, and in our hearts that, that he wants us to submit Right, but, but we also, you know, there's a big part of us that, that just wants what we want, right? And it's, it's hard, right? That wrestling match is so difficult. Part of me wants to give way to him and we know that that would be, be sweet, but we fear or we lack courage. Our pride is strong, right? The spirit is, the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak, Right? There's part of us that wants it, but our flesh is weak and we just want to live for self. Right? I love that insight there in that verse. That, that, that grappling with, with surrendering our will. It's, it's a huge burden for us. Right? Don't you love? I love it. It's just how non-sugar-coated that is. Right? It's not like, well, you know, everything's probably going to work out and you know, it might be a little tough. But no, he's like, this is going to be brutal. It's going to be hard. It's going to be a grind in your soul over these things. It was for Jesus. It's a burden for him. And it is for us too. But I think we can actually take some, some encouragement here in, in the example of, of the disciples. You may be thinking, hold on a second. I know where, you know, I just read it. Like, I know where this is going. Like, they were so soft. Like, they just bailed on Jesus uh, completely, right? They don't exactly pass with flying colors. What is there possibly to be, uh, to be encouraged by? Right? They say, they're, I'll never fall away. Right? Everyone else is going to. You notice how Peter says that? Even if they all do, which shows that he doesn't think much of them, does he? But he's like, I won't. Right? But they do. They, they scatter just moments later. Jesus tells them to, to watch and pray, but they can't even manage to do that. But hey, they do eventually, don't they? Right? We know the New Testament. We read the story of, of the church as it's just starting out and as it's growing. We read Acts. We read the letters that, that Peter wrote to the church to encourage them. We see the life transformation. We see what God has done. We see that they eventually grow stronger in this. You work your way through it. It's, it's unmistakable. You see that they're completely surrendered to the, the will of the Lord. They go to the point of death in this. Peter did. Right? Lives spent serving him 
It wasn't about their creature comforts. It wasn't about what they want. Well, how did they get there? Well, because they had these, these countless moments, even in these failures, learn from your own too, as Peter would have. With these moments of, of grappling over this and is it really worth it? And maybe you've made mistakes and you've, you've, you've doubled down on what you want. And you start to see, no, I, I'm dying inside here and this is not what's best. And there's consequences for it. But you've also seen those times where you're like, all right, Lord, have your way in me. And you submitted to him. And you see the joy that comes. You see the transformation that happens in you. And you see later on down the road, maybe it's in a conversation with somebody or maybe it's as you're serving, you see that the Lord uses you to bless somebody else. You're like, that's why I went through that. Right? It is worth it. It is so worth it. It's hard, but it's good. The disciples grappled with this. We need to grapple with it as well. Listen, it's what he's doing in you. It's what he's doing in me too. So I think the question really is, will you let him? You're going to let him do it. Will you bow your hearts? Will you let him soften that? The stiff neckness that the scriptures talk about. That's all got to go. Will you live in submission to the Lord? He's not going to waste it. You're thinking, well, I, I, I've done that, but, but I haven't seen how that's turned out for good for me. Be patient. He's not going to show it to you all right away necessarily. He's doing so much behind the scenes that you and I can't see. We got to have faith in this. We got to trust him. But he's using it. He's using it for your good. He's using it in the good of others. He's using it up for the building up of his church. So will we submit? We're going to sing a song right now that expresses these things. And I would challenge us and encourage us to sing this as your, your commitment to submit, to surrender, to find strength in your resolve where you've been kind of weak in all of that, to cry out to the Lord, God, I'm not doing so well here and, and I'm faltering, but Lord, not my will, yours.